So we're in the middle of a sermon series we've been going through. It's called Envy, Rivalry, and Violence. And it's been pretty dense theologically. We did some of the unpacking of a certain scholar theologian last week whose name is Rene Girard. And we did that because Rene Girard has probably been the most impactful scholar theologian uh, in my life, at least in my life in the last few years. And so we're starting to apply some of his work to the scripture. And so the first thing I think I'd like to do here is just review Girard's theory, to review his ideas. One, for those of us who maybe missed last week, but also because I know it's pretty dense and um, it's probably most of our first time hearing about it. So just buckle your seatbelts here. So Rene Girard was a historian and a lit crit who was on staff at Stanford University for decades. He just passed away last year. And he studied literature from all around the world both ancient as well as modern, and he was a historian as well. And what he noticed was a particular human pattern about violence and about cycles of violence. And he said that all violence begins with mimetic desire. All violence begins with mimetic desire. Now, mimetic just means imitative. Right? I desire something because you desire it. And he says all humans have desire, and we learn to be in the world by mimicking other people, you know, like babies and young children. This is like biologically hardwired into us in the form of mirror neurons, which are crucial to helping us to develop and to live and to be in the world. This is part of who we are. And he says that this kind of desire is not bad, not in and of itself, but it can become bad when we take on someone else's destructive desire as we saw with Eve in the Garden of Eden story, right? Eve took on the snake's destructive desire to want to be like God, and then Adam took on Eve's desire. And it can also become bad if desire leads to envy and to rivalry, like with Cain and with Abel, or like we'll talk about today with Joseph and his brothers. So Gerard says that desire gone bad is what leads to envy and rivalry, right? When more than one person wants the same thing, that's when the rivalries begin, which in turn leads to increased anxiety and tension within a group. And that group can be a family system, it can be a church system, it can be, our, um, can be a company or a business that you're part of, it can be a nation. And what Gerard says is that when this tension, these rivalries hit a certain tipping point, that that leads to violence. And if the group can't find an outlet for that violence, it will eventually turn on itself and it will implode. Like when we talk about this on a national scale, that's when civil war happens. And so to save the group from self-imploding, what the group members do is they identify a scapegoat. They identify a scapegoat on which they can project all of their anxiety and the envy and the rivalry. And he says that the scapegoat can be one person, it can be many people, and almost anything can mark somebody to be a scapegoat, just something that makes them different from the rest of the group. And at that point, he says, the group sort of succumbs to a mob mentality. And somebody from within the group or within the mob makes an accusation against the scapegoat. And that accusation is usually false. Right? So they make a false accusation. And in fact, the accusation that they're making against the scapegoat is actually usually true of the person making the accusation. Right? So if the mob accuses the scapegoat of being violent or having an intention to be violent toward the group, it's often because the mob itself is violent. And they're projecting their own propensity toward violence onto the scapegoat. If the mob accuses the scapegoat of being power hungry, it's often because the people in power are, or the people in the mob are power hungry. Right? So you get the picture there. Psychologically, it feels better than to offload our own sin, our own propensity toward these things, our own anxiety off onto one person and let them carry it. 
You know, a really good example of this on a national level might be Saddam Hussein and the second Gulf War. So Saddam Hussein is by no means an innocent man, right? He's a man of very poor character, a tyrant, somebody who tortured people. He's not a good person. But after all of the anxiety of 9-11 and all of the tensions that were rife in our country, to help keep us from turning on each other, we focused on a scapegoat and we accused him of something that he wasn't actually guilty of. He's guilty of many things, but we accused him of having weapons of mass destruction, which it turns out he did not have. You know who does have weapons of mass destruction? We do. Right? And so once the scapegoat is identified and they're carrying this projected anxiety and shame in the collective sin of the group, it's bullied, it's exiled, it's isolated, or it's killed. You get rid of the scapegoat. Either beat it up or you get rid of it or both. And he says the system actually works for achieving group peace. Right? When you're organizing around the scapegoat, the unity that the country experienced, when you get rid of the scapegoat, it brings people together, and in fact, it can work so well at relieving anxiety in group systems, and the relief of having that scapegoat gone is so strong that the person or the people who were once accused of being so horrible that they were going to bring terrible calamity on the group, they're now thought of a little bit more kindly. They're actually often remembered in sometimes nostalgic terms, even eliciting pity. And in many, many myths, the group sometimes deifies the scapegoat then or they make them into sort of a saint-like figure. But that scapegoat, if they're still alive, they will never receive an apology from anyone in the mob. I shouldn't say never. They won't usually. And if they do, it's a very rare occurrence, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And the thing about scapegoating is that it ultimately makes a group unsafe, because it doesn't actually address the underlying sources of anxiety. And so that cycle will eventually repeat itself, whether it takes months or years or decades if those sources aren't addressed, which I think we're seeing in our nation right now, as we're starting to turn on each other and we're identifying other scapegoats. And so René Girard, he identified this pervasive cycle of violence in human literature and history, and then he noticed that the Bible does something unique. And in fact, it's so unique that he actually converted to faith in Jesus um, as a result of his studying this. He says what the Bible seems to do is to unmask this system of violence, and it offers ways to counter it. And in fact, he would say, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection ultimately serves to declare it completely foolish. But this unmasking, it comes slowly in Scripture, as humans' relationship with God develops slowly over time. And so we start to see bits and pieces of it, even from the very beginning in Genesis, even in Genesis chapter 1. And it unfolds more and more as you get through the Scripture, really culminating in the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at Joseph. Now, we did an in-depth sermon on Joseph, I think, last fall. And we were looking at the story of Joseph through the lens of Brene Brown's work on shame and on vulnerability and resiliency. And I think this actually goes kind of hand-in-hand to this, because Gerard's work is all about revealing the God of the Bible as the God of the victim, a God of the vulnerable, a God who is for the oppressed. Right, so we're going to use his framework, and we're going to revisit the Joseph story this morning. And it's a story that starts like this. Joseph was a young man who lived in the Near East, the ancient Near East, about 4,000 years ago. And he was the 11th son of 12 sons. And he was born into a large nomadic family. We were a family that herded things like sheep and goats. And when we meet Joseph in the story, he's only 17 years old. And we're told that his father, who's Jacob, loved him more than he loved any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. 
That's kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? He loved him because he had been born to him in his old age. Well, it's strange for a couple of reasons. One, Joseph actually has a younger brother named Benjamin who was born seven years after him. So if there was a son who was born to Jacob in his old age, surely it would be Benjamin and not Joseph. Like, why wasn't he loved the most? And second, why would being born to a man in his old age make a son more lovable than his older siblings? Well, Genesis 37, 3 to 4, it says, Now Israel, who's Jacob, Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Semicolon. And he made an ornate robe for him. Right, so in the sentence, those two things are linked. Jacob loved him, he had been born to him in his old age, he made a robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they couldn't speak a kind word to him. Now, Leon Cass suggests that this phrase, born to him in his old age, probably means that Jacob loved Joseph best. Well, one, because he loved, Jake, he loved Joseph's mother the best. But he also sees him as a solution to the problems that arise from Jacob's old age. The problem of who is going to lead the family and carry the family blessing after Jacob dies. Right? So this is an age-old problem of succession. See, the eldest brother, Jacob's sons, the eldest, Reuben, had actually slept with one of Jacob's wives. So he probably wasn't going to get the family blessing. <laughs> and then the next two, Simeon and Levi, they were particularly violent, so they weren't good candidates, and on down. But then there was Joseph, little full of himself, but showing some signs of something more. And so Jacob, he gives his son Joseph the so-called coat of many colors, right? this technicolor dream coat. And it was likely a unisex garment that was, that was worn by well-to-do virgins. Right? That's the only other context we have it in ancient Near Eastern literature for those words, ornamented tunic. Right? So it was a special tunic. And um, in that same sentence, right, it was... Joseph was a favorite because he was born to Jacob in his own age. Joseph, or Jacob made Joseph this ornamented tunic. So linguistically, these two things are connected. And symbolically, I think this tunic is linked to succession. Right? It's the cloak of leadership. It's a sign of the blessing that Jacob stole from his brother Esau and is now conferring onto his 11th son. And Joseph's brothers know it, and they hate him. And they hate that coat, and they hate everything that that coat stands for. But Joseph makes things worse for himself. He makes things worse in the family system. Genesis 37, 5 to 11 says, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to me, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose up. And all of yours started to bow down to it. <laughs> and his brother said, do you intend to reign over us? Are you going to rule us? And they hated him all the more because of that dream and because of what he had said. And then Joseph had another dream, and he told that to his brothers. He's not real bright. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, he says. He's 17. <laughs> 17 year old. <laughs> he said, this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. And he said, what's this dream you had? Do you actually think that your mother and I and your brothers are going to bow down to you? Says his brothers were jealous of him, but his, brother, or his father kept it in mind. So one day, his older brothers, they're out in the pastures, they're tending the sheep and the goats, and along comes Joseph. And they see him coming toward them, and they decide that they're going to kill him. So they have a little disagreement among them, and eventually they decide, okay, we won't murder him, but what we'll do is we'll throw him into an old water pit. Right? So they strip Joseph of what? His robe, his symbolic cloak of leadership, 
and they threw him down in it. And then some traders came along, and they sold him to those traders who were heading to Egypt. They sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, which is a little foreshadowing of Jesus being sold and um, being betrayed by Judas. Well, after they sold him into slavery, what they do? They slaughtered a goat, they dipped the coat in the blood, they took it back to Jacob, and they said, your son has been murdered by wild animals. So we have here, in this little story here, almost all of the elements of a Girardian cycle of violence. Right? First, we have desire. Right? All of the brothers want to be loved and favored by their dad. And a desire to be loved by our father is not a bad thing. But the desire to be favored seems to have led to envy. Right? We're told outright, Joseph's brothers are jealous of him. And this jealousy led to rivalry. Right? They saw that Jacob loved Joseph more, and he intended to pass the family blessing down to him, right? symbolized by that coat. And so there's all this internal rivalry, which led to anxiety and tension within their family system. Anxiety that Joseph exacerbated. And so Joseph becomes the natural scapegoat in this family that is riven by this internal rivalry over who's going to be the heir and over who had the love and the favor of their father. And so the accusations begin to come from Joseph's brothers. And we heard them say, do you intend to reign over us? Are you going to rule us? They're accusing Joseph of intending to reign and rule over them, of intending to dominate them and cause them to submit to him, to bow down to them, to bow down to him. And the thing is, is we don't actually know if Joseph intended that. We know that his father Jacob probably intended that. But we don't know if Joseph did. We don't know if he was relaying those dreams out of a sense of maybe naivete, like they were actual dreams that he had, or if he was actually trying to exert some sort of power and influence over them. What we do know is that Joseph's brothers were guilty of what they were accusing him of. They're saying, you're going to try and make us submit and bow down to you. Well, what did they do? They forced Joseph to submit to them. They threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. They knew their own propensity to do what they were accusing him of doing. So we don't know. Joseph was either naive, or it's perhaps possible that he um, is one of those scapegoats in history for whom some of the accusations are true. I tend to think he probably wasn't totally naive and that probably some portion of that he would have to own. But in the end, we really don't know. All we know is that the accusations came. And then once the scapegoat here was identified, Gerard says that the person or people will be bullied, exiled, or killed. And so Joseph's brothers did, in fact, uh, intend to kill him. But one of his brothers, Judah, Judah stepped up and he said, why don't we sell him into slavery instead? And I want you to remember this little bit in in the story here, that this was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery, because we're going to come to that here in the next bit. And then after Joseph was sold off into slavery, presumably his absence brought some kind of temporary peace and unity between his brothers, although we don't see that, we don't have access to that in the story. But that's the Girardian cycle right there. But here's the difference from other pieces of literature. This story continues. And not only does it continue, but it continues from the point of view of the scapegoat, from the point of view of Joseph, and not from the point of view of the mom, from his brothers. So we're allowed, as the readers and as the listeners, to see the impact of this cycle of violence on Joseph's life. So the narrative takes him from this sort of two-dimensional, somewhat arrogant character 
And it turns him into a really complex three-dimensional character. It humanizes the scapegoat. So first, we're allowed to see a glimpse of what life was like for Joseph as a hired hand in an Egyptian household and about the injustices that can be done to people who have less power. And as a result of those injustices, then Joseph ends up in jail and we're allowed a glimpse into what his life is like there. And then through a series of circumstances, many of us know the story, right? Joseph rose up through the ranks. He gained favor with the Pharaoh, the leader of all Egypt, and he was made second in command. And his role as second in command was to sell grain to surrounding countries because there was a giant famine in the land. And so that's once again where Joseph meets his brothers. His brothers come to Egypt and they come to him to buy grain for their families. Now I know, it was interesting to me, that Joseph, you know, if he'd risen to be second in command of all of Egypt, if he had wanted to meet up with his brothers again, he could have arranged that. He doesn't actually arrange for this. Right? He's avoiding it. He doesn't meet them again by his own choice. But here they are, and they don't recognize him. So understandably, Joseph doesn't trust them, and so he doesn't reveal his identity to them. Right? His brothers abused him, and they rejected him, and they treated him in a way that caused him a lot of, trust, of trauma. So I think he's right to not trust them. But it's at this point in the story, for the very first time, that we're told the harrowing details about what being sold into slavery was like for Joseph. We're told that he was distressed and that he pleaded with his brothers for his life. He was deeply distressed and he pleaded for his life. And this is the humanizing part of the scapegoat. Right? It's allowing the readers and listeners to see what this exile was like from the scapegoat's point of view, but it wasn't okay for him. And so Joseph, in this space, he designs a couple of tests for his brothers because he doesn't trust them. And we're not going to go into the details of all of the tests, but I do want to take a look at the final test that he gives his brothers. So here's some context for that final test. By the time of this, Joseph's brothers had already come to him once. They didn't recognize him. He didn't reveal himself. He sold them grain. They took that grain back home to their dad. And he told them, he said, if you ever want more grain from me, you need to bring, my young, or you need to bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, with you. Because Benjamin didn't come with them the first time. And Benjamin... Joseph has a particular affinity for him because they share the same mother, but also Benjamin wasn't there when he was sold into slavery, so he's a little bit more of the safer brother. And so his brothers do eventually return to Egypt to buy food, and they do, in fact, bring Benjamin. And so here they are, they're at the court, they have Benjamin with them, and they're asking Joseph for food. And so at this point, Joseph asks his servants, he says, okay, I want you to place my personal drinking and divination cup, and I want you to take it and place it into Benjamin's sack of grain. Right? He's actually setting Benjamin up to be accused of stealing. So once again, Joseph sends his brothers back home to Canaan with all of their sacks of grain, and then he calls his servants to him, and he says, okay, I want you to go after them, and I want you to search their sacks. So of course, we know what happens. They go, they search the sacks, and Joseph's personal cup is found in Benjamin's sack. And so they bring them back to Joseph's court. And Joseph tells his brothers, he said, look, I'm going to take Benjamin as a slave for punishment because he stole my cup. And this is the test. One of Rachel's sons still lives. Rachel had two children, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph, they think, is dead. Benjamin is probably their father's favorite because he thinks Joseph's dead and because he loved Rachel the most. And so the test is this. Are the older brothers going to turn Benjamin over to be a slave too? Are they going to scapegoat him the way they scapegoated Joseph? 
Do they want to be rid of Benjamin the same way? And Joseph is saying, I'm giving you an easy opportunity to turn both of Rachel's sons over to slavery in Egypt. Right? He's replaying what happened to him only with Benjamin as a scapegoat. And some of this replaying of his trauma is probably due to the impact of trauma on him. Right? We know that trauma victims often re-experience their trauma. But what the framework of this story allows us to do is to see the parallels between the two. So instead of selling Benjamin off like they did with Joseph, the brothers instead show compassion on their father, who would likely die of grief, and they show compassion on Benjamin. Now remember the brother who actually sold Joseph into slavery, Judah. It's actually Judah who steps up, and he tells Joseph, he says, take me instead of Benjamin. And I think this was crucial because Judah probably would have been pretty triggering for Joseph. If you can imagine, Joseph who's born all of the injustices of being sold into slavery and rejection, and the same brother whose idea it was to sell him into slavery steps in and does something different. And so whether he's ready for it or not, this is the act that undoes Joseph. Because he realizes that they're not going to scapegoat Benjamin the same way they scapegoated him. And so in a frenzy, Joseph, he orders all of his attendants and all of his servants to get out. He said, leave me. Have everybody leave my presence. And then the text says that he wept so loudly that everyone in his household heard him. And all of Pharaoh's household heard about it. Right, so that's some crying. He probably had a fairly large residence. All of the years of the pain and the terror and the anger were just unraveling as he cries, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? And his brothers, of course, are utterly terrified, which is probably the state that Joseph needed them in in order to reveal himself safely. But do we see what's going on here? Right? This narrative is revealing the scapegoating, and it's revealing the unjustness of the cycle. It's showing the pain that this cycle of violence caused Joseph. It caused the victim pain. And he wails and he wails. I think he cries six times in like the last seven chapters of Genesis. And the narrative is unveiling the innocence of the scapegoat. And this is different in literature. And if we didn't see it entirely before with Joseph, right, I think we're not quite sure of his complete innocence. But if we don't see it in that part, we definitely see the innocence of the scapegoat with Benjamin. We're told Joseph set him up. He was completely innocent of the accusations that came against him. And here we have Judah, the same brother who orchestrated Joseph's sale into slavery, seeming to have changed his ways. Right? He is no longer scheming to be rid of his younger brother because of rivalry. Instead, he's offering himself in Benjamin's place. And this is mind-blowing. I don't know if we're quite getting this. This is mind-blowing. This is a change in the Gerardian cycle. This is when scripture begins to hint that this cycle can be broken or changed. There's an interruption to where it doesn't repeat itself. And additionally, the story of Joseph is the first story in the Bible, at least that I can think of, that reveals the role of the mob. Right? We saw mimetic desire when we studied Adam and Eve. We saw rivalry leading to violence in the story of Cain and Abel. You certainly see this in all of the brother stories in Genesis, as well as with Sarah and Hagar. But this is the first time the text reveals the social dynamics of the larger group. And it's always been interesting to me that in this story, we never see the brothers apologize to Joseph for what they did. I mean, maybe they did apologize, but it's not in the text. The closest that we have in the text is that after Jacob, their dad, dies, 
the brothers come to Joseph and they tell him, oh, it was our father's dying wish on his deathbed that, he, that you forgive us, right? Which may have been a manipulative lie. <laughs> but they don't actually come out and say, we harmed you terribly and we're sorry. Which lines up with what Gerard has noticed about mob dynamics in other stories. He says the mob doesn't take responsibility for their actions. They'll talk about that terrible thing that happened or how horrible it was that this had to happen to such and such a person or people, but never about that terrible thing I did or that terrible thing that I took part in. Because when a group acts out against a scapegoat or against scapegoats, they can disperse the guilt so that no one ever actually has to own it, which you can imagine is a hindrance for reconciliation. So I'm going to take it up at that in two weeks. Ken will preach next week. Um, I think I had said that I was going to talk about Jesus this week again, and I didn't, but I'm going to in two weeks. I thought, I want to do Joseph. <laughs> we did Jesus part one last week, and then we'll do part two in two weeks, probably to close it out. But I think this is really a key to this whole idea that the gospel writers are talking about when they're talking about reconciliation with God and the importance of confession within our faith, to be able to own our things so that we can break this cycle to bring reconciliation in our lives. So that's where we'll pick it up. I think right now we're going to go ahead and have our two minutes of silence. As a congregation, we usually like to take two or three minutes of just silence together. Sometimes we meditate on something particular, but you know, today I just keep feeling like the last two weeks, you know, we talked about Black Lives Matter last week and some of the injustices, and it feels like things just keep coming in our culture or even like with all of the things that happened in France and in Turkey this week. And so there's a lot of anxiety and tension in our larger group system, and I thought we could just take these two or three minutes here to just dial down and just concentrate on the God who brings peace that passes understanding. Right? And to concentrate on the fact that yeah, the Bible talks about Satan, right? The Satan just means the accuser. It's almost like the spirit of a mob Right? The spirit of the accusers at loose. And the spirit that God gave us, the spirit of peace, is called the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And that is the spirit of the advocate. Not the accuser, but the advocate. And I just want to invite this Holy Spirit, the spirit that is not the accuser, but a spirit that is an advocate, to come and rest on us this morning. And if you need something to picture, maybe just picture almost like tangible peace coming down from heaven and setting on us as we concentrate on our breathing and just sitting in the peace and presence of God. I'll keep my eye on the time. Holy Spirit, come.
Lord, may the spirit of the advocate infuse our minds and our hearts. May the spirit of the advocate be at work in our lives as we go through our week. We give thanks to the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus Christ himself. And we thank you that you send this advocate to us as our comforter, as our peace. Amen.